going to take you back to 2003 and share with you just a little bit about my story, describe for you some of the events that were happening in my life. In 2003, I had just turned 30 years old. I was a student at the college at Southeastern, which is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, studying to be a pastor. I worked a full-time job as a manufacturing engineer. I pastored a bivocational church about 45 minutes away on the weekend, Browns Baptist Church. And at the time, I was the father of three children, now four, but then three. So as you can imagine, I had a very full plate and very long and full days. I don't remember the exact date. I know that it was a work day because I was sitting at my desk. I had a business style desk. I had an office job in part. Computer to the left of me, I can still see its screen. And I was sitting there doing my daily chores and I remember distinctly that I had my hand on my face. Many of us do this when we're thinking, you know, it's not uncommon. I had my hand on my face. When I noticed an odd phenomenon, my forehead right up here felt tingly as if it had gone to sleep. Do you know that feeling or sensation when you wake up in the middle of the night and your hand's asleep and it's kind of there? but kind of not there. Well, that's the way my forehead felt. And that's just weird, isn't it? I noticed that if I touched my lip, a burst of those tingly sensations would radiate up through my face. Kind of weird. The people on the shop floor must have thought I was particularly weird because I sat there for some 15 minutes tapping my lips and trying to figure out what is wrong with my head the same way you try to awaken your hand in the middle of the night. Only mine never woke up. By the way, it never has. It wasn't long after that that I began to notice that in my cheeks and in my tongue that I had tremors. That's not normal. It's not normal. You know that moment when you began to think something's wrong. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long after that, uh, we lived in apartments. We had uh, carpet very similar to this. Um, the entryway to our apartment opened into an interior hallway. Okay, so the apartments came inside. And uh, my daughter at the time, Sarah, was probably maybe two years old, still maybe less, about, about uh, Curtis's age. So we spent a lot of time you know, holding her. And I was walking with her one night, and I was barefoot, but I was able to go out in the hallway because it was, you know, inside. And I remember walking, and I could not feel the carpet with my left foot. You know what it's time for? It's time to go to the doctor. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't say anything to Amanda. I just went to the doctor. I don't go to the doctor very much. I'm a pretty healthy person. I've always been very athletic and outgoing. I don't go to the doctor very much, so I went to see my primary care physician. And my primary care physician, um, you know, examined me, gave me an exam, and, and, and they said, I don't even remember my doctor at the time, but they said, you need to go see a neurologist. 
I didn't even know what a neurologist was. I've never been to a neurologist. I don't know what a neurologist is. But here's what I do remember. As I was checking out that day from my primary care physician, the nurse looked at me. She was reviewing my charts and recommending the appropriate neurologist. And she looked at me and she asked me, she said, the tremors, are they just, you know, just in your hands or are they all over your body? And I said, well, they're kind of all over. And she said, hmm. What is that supposed to be? <laughs> Thank you for that comment. That gesture indicated to me that what I was about to face was probably significant. So I had to go home that day and tell my wife. I actually told my wife the night before my neurologist appointment. That's when I finally told my wife something's wrong. And so I went to the neurologist. I had, um, I had two MRIs. Have any of you had an MRI before? Some MRIs? You know, little tunnel, right? In the tunnel, lots of magnets and sound. Two MRIs. And I had a procedure called an evoked response, which is where they put electrodes on your head and electrodes on your feet. And they pass current through your body trying to measure your nervous system. Is it working or not? Um, I had to have a spinal tap. I couldn't afford it. So the doctor said, I'll tell you what, because you can't afford it, I'll do it in my office if you can take it. And I'll only charge you for an office visit. Oh, and so I bent over and I took it. And he said, you have multiple sclerosis. I did not ask for that. Multiple sclerosis is not hereditary. It is also not contagious. Doctors cannot tell you what it exactly is nor what causes it. All they could tell me was that you have it. They showed me my MRIs and there on my brain scan were scar tissue. And the reason my hands trembled and my face feels funny is because the signals from my brain never reach it properly. There's interference from the scar. In a matter of weeks, I resigned from the church I was pastoring. Who can pastor when you're sick? Can't. In a matter of months, I had graduated from college, not with the degree that I intended to get, but with whatever degree they would give me because I could not continue. I ended up with a two-year associate's degree in biblical studies, and Dr. Cohen was mighty gracious to give me that. He only gave me that because I had told him I had multiple sclerosis. And I began a medication called Avanex. It's an injection you receive once a month, or excuse me, once a week on Mondays. It's intermuscular, which means the needle is about this long. And I don't know if y'all have noticed yet, but my muscles aren't this big. <laughs> so on Mondays, I would come home from work, because I still had to work. I would come home from work, and my wife, not a nurse, not a doctor, my wife would administer the shot. She often hit my femur bone. We cried every Monday. And I would go back to work. I, went, I didn't come home for lunch, I went home for a shot. I would go back to work, I would have the flu until about Thursday or Friday. 
because you know what medicines do to you sometimes. I would almost recover by the next Monday, just in time to start up. Mm. What you gonna do about that? You may not have multiple sclerosis, but I'm willing to bet that many of you either have faced or are facing moments like that. I prayed in those days that God will allow me to live, to live. By the way, MS will not kill you, but it will take your life. It dismantles the nervous system one piece at a time until you're nothing more than a blob on a bed. My prayer was simple. Lord, I would like to see my youngest son graduate from high school. At moments like that, you know what you need? You need answers. Because you certainly have questions, don't you? You need answers. And I came today to share with you that everything you need for life and godliness is found here. That the Bible I hold in my hands has never met a life, a problem, a difficulty that it can't answer. If you do not have answers to your questions, it is because you have not yet sought out them in the Word of God. So today I will share with you the answers to my predicament at the age of 30. By the way, I'm still here. Amen. <laughs> oh, and by the way, I have four children. My fourth child's name is, she's named Grace. So I will share with you the answers to my dilemma in the hope that the instruction found in God's word will apply to you as much as it has to me over the years. Now, I need you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis, and we will spend most of our time this morning in Genesis chapter 38, a very unlikely chapter of the Bible to deal with multiple sclerosis. If you had read this chapter before our service, you would laugh and say, there's no way that this can be the answer to multiple sclerosis, and yet this is the chapter that answered my questions as I walked through a disease that surely could take my life. Now, as you turn to Genesis chapter 38, let me kind of give you some preface as to where we are in the Bible so you will have your mind situated correctly as we prepare to read the text. So you will remember that the Bible, especially Genesis, consists of pretty much one family. After creation and the fall, in Genesis 12, we began with the life of Abraham. And most of you are very familiar with the life of Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is the family of Abraham unfolding. So Abraham begot Isaac, good, Isaac, also Ishmael, but Isaac is the main son, the son of the promise. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob, and of Esau, of course, but Jacob is the seed lineage that we go through. And then Jacob begets 
12 sons, we might call them Judah and his brothers. So that's the outline of the book of Genesis. You have creation, the fall, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Jacob. And in particular, Joseph. And this is the part, we're at the end of Genesis, that primarily deals with the life of Joseph. In fact, Genesis chapter 37 all the way to Genesis chapter 50 is in fact the life of Joseph. Everybody with me as to where we are in the Bible. So I was reading through my Bible at the time as I'm being tested, as I'm going through the preliminary stages of this diagnosis, I'm reading through the book of Genesis. And I got to Genesis chapter um, 37. I was already familiar with the life of Joseph, and I was aware of the fact that the rest of this portion of the Bible was going to be on the life of Joseph, you know, the rest of his life. So I'm reading along, and it's all familiar territory when I stumble across Genesis chapter 38. And in a very peculiar way, the Bible comes to a sudden stop and for a single chapter describes the life of Judah. If you're reading through your Bible, it's a very startling translation. I mean, I thought we were going to study through the life of Joseph, we stop suddenly, and for a single chapter of the Bible, not many chapters, a single chapter of the Bible, suddenly we're going to study the life of Judah. After the chapter is over, we resume with Joseph for the rest of the way. And I noticed that this is a very, there must be something very peculiar about this chapter of the Bible. The more I investigated, the more God began to lay open to me what is happening in his word, what is happening in my life. So we read today from the life of Judah in chapter 38. And I'm only going to read the first half of the first verse, and then I will need your help to describe something of Judah's life. Here's what it says. I guess I'll read the whole verse 1. It came to pass, Genesis 38 and 1, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. It's just peculiar unexpected this chapter of the Bible. So let's take a moment and try to understand what were Judah's circumstances when this chapter opens. It's going to take some thought. It's going to take some time for us to unpack it. So let me ask you an easier question so we can get a hold of it. When this chapter opens, before I even read verse 1, when the chapter opens, where is Judah living? With his right. He's living with his brothers. And where is Jacob the father and all of the brothers, including Judah, where are they living? Awesome. They're living in the promised <laughs> land. You remember their grandfather, Abraham, received the promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had told their grandfather, this is the land, and I was thinking about Texas, this is the ranch, this heavenly home is going to be yours and your families, and, and Judah was now living in this promised land. Any of you, are any of y'all living on your grandfather's property? Anybody? No? I see when you are living on your... And isn't that sweet? 
we, we still have my grandfather's property. Uh, my father now lives there. It's a very special place. And Judah was living in this very special place. He, did he have a good place to live? And someone mentioned earlier, uh, Janice, I think it was you, or somebody did, who is he living with? He's in the promised land, say it, Maxine. He's got most all of his family he has around him. So his father is there. His mother has passed away, but his father is there. Most of his brothers are there. Joseph is not there, but most of his brothers are there. I suspect their wives, perhaps nieces and nephews, I don't know exactly, but the bulk of his family is there. Pretty good situation, wouldn't you say? And by the way, he's not just living in the promised land with the promised family. But he's living under the covenant promise of God. God had promised his grandfather Abraham that this family would be blessed throughout the generations. And so there is a sense of wealth in this family. Blessing comes in many forms. Wealth is not the only form of blessing. But Jacob was living, excuse me, um, Judah was living in a family that was well off. They had livestock. They had fodder and lands. They had food. So let me ask you in summary, how were Judah's circumstances? Pretty good. Yeah, I would agree with you entirely. He had plenty of material possessions. He had this land that he was living in. He had a family surrounding him. All of his circumstances good. Now we began to read about his decisions. And decisions reveal our convictions. Is that not true? What you decide to eat says something about your convictions concerning health. Is that true? It's true, isn't it? I mean, if we go to the restaurant and I see you eating a salad, that decision reveals something about a conviction inside of you, doesn't it? That you have a conviction, perhaps, that your body is the temple. So as we began to read of Judah's life and his actions, what's ultimately being revealed is his heart, his convictions. So let's see what his convictions are. It says that it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. What do you think the Bible is conveying by that phrase, departed from his brothers? I love the word. He left. Go ahead. Left the blessing. He, he's, he, it's a rebellious act, isn't it? Yes. This is not a vacation. This is not an appropriate distancing to build your own family. This is a willful, rebellious act of forsaking my family. And I know that because the rest of the verse says this, and he visited a certain Adulamite whose name was, I'll pronounce it, Hira. 
Now, I don't know who the Adulamites were, and I don't know Hira personally, but I have a sneaky suspicion, like when your kids bring over that friend. I have a sneaky suspicion that this is a worldly association. Do you think that's fair? We're finding out something about the convictions of Judah's heart. Look at verse 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. Now, God had already indicated in grandfather's life, Abraham, and father's life, Jacob, that we should be careful who we marry. The Canaanites were pagan people. They were unbelievers. You don't marry them. Abraham had been careful with Isaac. Isaac, careful with, uh, with uh, Jacob in ensuring that you marry people with convictions of godliness. You with me? But here we find Judah not following that pattern. Who is Judah marrying? A, a Canaanite, a pagan, someone who does not have godly convictions. And we see unfolding in before us Judah's heart. Say what you will, your actions will tell you. True? Now we can see what God is communicating. God is saying something through his word. That Judah had all the right circumstances, but none of the right convictions. He had all of the right externals, but he had nothing right on the inside. Is that a fair summary of the text? Fair summary? Now we have the privilege of seeing firsthand what happens to a life that has the identical components. Doesn't matter if it's Judah, or me, or you, or anyone in the world, this is what it looks like when you have all of the right circumstances, but all of the wrong convictions. Whatever happens to Judah is the pattern that always follows this kind of life. So let's read and let's see what happens to this man by the name of Judah. Verse 3. So she conceived, that is his wife, and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shia or Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. And then Judah took, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, also pagan. Look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. God is now laying before us what the life looks like when you have the right circumstances but the wrong convictions. Judah raises a family, and how does he raise them? Not good. When you get, listen, when daddy's got the wrong convictions, guess what the son has? 
strong convictions. And what begins to pervade the life of Judah is a life of death. And his son dies, and it is the Lord who slays him. But that pattern is not just a single event. It is indeed something that reoccurs. You'll notice the next thing, I need to make a comment before I read the next text. The next text, part of the Bible, is explicit. But we're all adults. Okay, so I'm going to read it. Here's what it says. Verse 8, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore the Lord killed him also. There is, a, there is a pattern of sickness and death and sin pervading this family. That's not all that happens. It continues in verse 11. And then Judah said, by the way, Judah's down to one son. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shea is grown, for he said, least he also die like his brothers. I got one, every time I give one to this girl, she, he dies. Notice, Judah is still blaming things on his circumstances. The problem is out there, but where's the problem? In here. Mm -hmm. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. How many is that now? That's, that's at least three, right? One, two, at least three. This is a culture of death. So what does Judah do when his wife dies? He does what most worldly people do. He goes and gets drunk. I'll read it to you. In the process of time, verse 12, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. He was comforted. And went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, and he was with his friend Hira the Adulamite. By the way, the sheep shears is the place to go party, and what do you think he did with Hira the Adulamite? He indulged himself. In fact, he comes back from that partying episode. Verse 13, and it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in the open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered herself. Her face. So let's make sure we get the text here. The daughter-in-law dresses up like a prostitute. Yes, this is in the Bible. And Judah, half drunk probably, sees her and sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant and bears two children. Shall we? Now this is appropriate since y'all have a train running by your front door. Shall we call this a train wreck? <laughs> Is this not a train wreck of a life? 
whatever else we may draw from this, this much can be said. This is horrible. And it all began because Judah had, listen carefully, all the right circumstances, but all of the wrong convictions. Now, notice in the Bible that God frequently, throughout the Bible, will place side by side opposing truths so that we have a great deal of clarity about what he's communicating. So if any of you have Proverbs as one of your favorite books of the Bible, anybody like the book of Proverbs? I love the book of Proverbs. Almost all of Proverbs does this, where the positive is stated and then the negative. I circled a few. Here's one. Just listen carefully how God goes about his business. It goes like this. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. So God gives us, okay, this is what this looks like on the negative side, and then this is what this looks like on the positive side. It happens again in the book of Acts. Do you remember a man by the name of Barnabas? Barnabas sold all of his possessions and gave them to the church. Remember this? And right on the heels of that story are Ananias and Sapphira, who gave all of their goods and kept some of the money back. Barnabas is praised, Ananias and Sapphira are killed. So God lays before us these, these kind of perpendicular passages to say, okay, this is what I'm not looking for. This is what I am looking for. Consider it carefully. Now we understand that Judah had all the right circumstances, all the wrong convictions, and we now can read how that life ends up. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 39. We're almost done, and we have lunch, so I guess you can bear a little longer. Genesis 39, suddenly the narrative shifts. We're done with Judah's life. We now pick back up with whose life? Joseph's life. Now, as the chapter opens, before I read, I'll just read the first phrase. How about that? Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. We now have the responsibility of describing his circumstances. His circumstances. So help me, you know the life of Joseph well enough. At this moment in your Bible, what are Joseph's circumstances? He has been taken, and I think we can add the word sold. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to say that? Now, what Egypt, does he speak the language there? No, he doesn't. Where does he end up, by the way? Okay, Potiphar's house, as, go ahead, as a servant or a slave. So I ask the same questions. Is he in the promised land? No. Does he have father or brother or niece or nephew or cousin or anyone of any relation around him? No, he doesn't. And is he still under the umbrella of the promise? Well, you and I would say yes because we know the rest of the story, but if you were Joseph being hauled off to Egypt, you might feel somewhat abandoned, severed from the promises that were given to his grandfather. How would you describe Joseph's circumstances? Very good. <laughs> Not, he has... All of the wrong circumstances. 
all of the wrong circumstances. And yet I read just a couple of verses from Genesis 39 where the Bible says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Mm -hmm. Then he made much, made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. What was Joseph's heart like? What was in here? He had a relationship with his creator, his redeemer, and his sustainer. All the wrong circumstances, all the right conviction, and how did things turn out for him? And now I have clarity about my own life. Now I can see through the lens of my God's eyes. Because I can ask the most important question, the one question that burned upon my heart, is multiple sclerosis a conviction or a circumstance? Which is it? It's a circumstance. <coughs> and if I hold to the right convictions, it will have no sway over this life. Because what matters is not whether my hands shake. What matters is not whether my forehead feels numb, which, by the way, it still does. What matters is if I know my Creator, my Redeemer, and my Sustainer. Which leads to just one or two other very quick applications. Our problems are always on the inside. If you complain, it is not because of your circumstances, it's because of your heart. Catch that? If you're grumpy, it's because you got a grumpy heart. If you're nasty, it's because you have a nasty heart. 
I promise you, we could change all of your circumstances and you'd still have the same personality. But if your heart gets changed, it wouldn't matter which situation you are in. We have a member of our church by the name of Donna Jones. Donna Jones lost her leg about 20 years ago. She's not been out of the nursing home bed in six years. Funny thing is, when I go see her, she's happy. How can that be? Because there's something here. I wanted to have a time of invitation because God wants to deal with us here. I've asked Wayne to come. He's going to come now. And I asked to do the invitation differently this morning because I want you to do business with God, not with me, not with Justin. You need to do business with God. I don't know what's in here, but you and God do. I asked Wayne if he would just begin to play an instrumental piece, and he's going to begin to do that now. It gives you about a minute or two. You know what God says? He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us on the inside of all of our unrighteousness. So this is the moment of confession. This is the moment of repentance. This is the moment where you can ask the Holy Spirit to come into your heart. If you're not yet saved, this is the moment you can say, Lord Jesus, I want to be a brand new person from the inside by the blood you spilt on Calvary. Whatever God is calling, I'm asking you now to bow your heads. Right now, close your eyes. I'm going to do the same thing. And as Wayne plays, this is your moment to do business with God. Whatever is on your plate, whatever is in your life, whatever is in your heart, would you allow God to work inside of you at this time?